Okay. If you have your Bibles, open them to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, for a message entitled, Discerning False Prophets, from verses 15 through 20 of this closing chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. It's important that we always take the time, I think, to let our children know how important they are to us and to, uh, I hope, let their parents know how important they are to us. So we take time out in the, in the worship service, right in the middle of it, to, to say that and to hope, hopefully to teach some, some truths to these young hearts and these young minds. For indeed, we have been given stewardship of them. And so for those of you that uh, think you might be interested, seriously, I'd, I'd be open to some of you coming and sharing in this time with the children. I think you'd find it quite a, quite a blessing if you did. So last Sunday, we spent a, a great deal of time talking about truth and, and our culture, and those, th- those things are very closely tied to the, the text that we're going to be looking at today. I'm, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time there again this week. I would refer you to that message online. You could go back and listen to the first 15 minutes or so, 10 minutes or so, and and, and garner that truth that was the kind of the introduction to that message. But I'm going to remind you just to reiterate that, that there are many people in our culture who have concluded that, that trying to determine what is truth is, is in fact an exercise in futility. And, and truth, many would say, depends on how you define it. What's true for you may not be true for me. What's true today may not be true tomorrow. And the idea that there's any such thing as absolute truth is is foreign. It's a backwards way of thinking to many in our culture today. And yet there have always been questions about the nature of truth. Philosophers have speculated about truth for centuries. Pilate, in the process of questioning Jesus, asked that pointed and pertinent question that has reverberated down through the centuries. What is truth? And so, so it comes as no surprise to us that many are asking the same question today. And and so when people come along claiming to be chosen by God, uh, having the appearance of being men and women of God, come along claiming to, to teach the truth, and when they do so in front of large gatherings and in giant stadiums and on television broadcasts that are reaching tens of millions of people, it becomes critical for us to be able to tell if their message is the truth or not. It's imperative to know what is the source of their truth so that we can determine if indeed they're speaking the truth so let's see what jesus had to say about this would you please stand in honor of the reading of god's word beginning in verse 15 jesus says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Please be seated. So there's so many voices coming at us today from so many different directions. You don't have to look very far at all to to see or hear some self-anointed prophet claiming to have a prophetic word concerning important issues in our lives. And in that broader 
quote-unquote Christian community. There are a lot of preachers, many with a great number of followers, delivering what they claim are biblical messages that not only differ in trivial ways, minor ways, from true biblical teaching, but in fundamental, substantive content in the stuff that really matters and, and these voices to which I'm referring, they do sound convincing sometimes. They sound comforting even sometimes. But are they right? Are they truthful? So whom do we follow? And how do we know? Following the wrong leader, believing the wrong things has led to disastrous results. Just in our lifetimes, most recently this very year, in Kenya, 403 followers of the self-proclaimed evangelical pastor Paul McKenzie have been found in mass graves. He apparently convinced them to starve themselves to death in the name of God. Hundreds more are still missing and presumed dead there. Some of you remember David Koresh and the Branch Davidians from the early 90s and the tragedy that occurred there outside Waco, Texas in April of 1993. If we go back a little bit farther to 1978, some of you remember the name Jim Jones, leader of the so-called People's temple and those of us who were alive then if you're like me you still wonder how so many people could be deceived by jim jones 918 people took their own lives there in jonestown guyana and i, I bet for some of you young people that number doesn't even sound like it could be real one writer observed the greater tragedy of jonestown was not that nearly a thousand people died but that they died believing they were serving God. The false prophets of our day had become much more polished and subtle in their methods and methodology and message, and they're having much more success as they deceive millions. Those who know these things, the experts in the field, tell us that there are between there are there are up to ten thousand cults in the United States alone that have between 1.65 million and 6 million adherents. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And His words have certainly proved true over the centuries. And because they are true, we, we, we've got to develop the ability to be able to discern between true and false prophets and as to that issue that our text speaks today. As we've gone throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus has been telling us, His followers, how we should live our lives. And now He applies those same principles to those who lead God's people. And He gives us a method by which we can more accurately and effectively determine who is true and who is false. So what's the key? How can we be sure? Well, what's the method by which we may discern who is true and who is false? Well, in the first place, he indicates that we discern prophets not by looking at the outside. Beware of the false prophets in verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So, so before we can determine who is true and who is false we've got to understand a fundamental principle, and it's this. We cannot make that determination solely upon outward appearances. 
if we just look at the externals, we can be and will be deceived. For example, we, we've never been able to tell, we'd never be able to tell that they were false prophets with a false message just by looking at those who are the leading spokesmen for the LDS Church or Jehovah Witnesses or the Church of Scientology. And likewise, the false preachers of the Word of Faith movement who propagate the, the so-called prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, are not distinguishable by their appearance. For from lavish and appealing settings, they address their listeners wearing expensive suits, screening from ear to ear with every hair perfectly in place, speaking pleasant and nice words to tickle the ears of those who, who need desperately the unadulterated Word of God. And if we get caught up in the eye candy and, and fail to, to listen carefully to the false and heretical doctrines they proclaim, if we allow ourselves to be mesmerized by their polish and their personality, we will have made a serious mistake. We'll have put ourselves in danger of being deceived. Remember what Jesus said. He said there would come a time when these false prophets would show great signs and wonders so as to mislead even the elect. So if we're, if we're, only, if we're to only look at the outs, outward manifestations of supernatural power, we would easily be deceived. Satan is a supernatural being, and it's been described as the angel of light. Jesus said that these false prophets would come to you in sheep's clothing. Now you think about it for a minute. The perfect disguise for a wolf who wants a lamb chop for dinner would be what? Sheep suit? Yeah, I think so. Now, he might look like a, a sheep, but on the inside, he would still be this hungry, vicious, ravenous wolf. The old saying, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and is probably a duck, is not necessarily true. In fact, men are capable of walking like and quacking like a lot of things they're not, that they're not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul speaks to us to warn us about the nature of false prophets when he writes, For such men are false prophets. There we, there, there we go. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So if prophets can appear to you and I like apostles of Christ, can appear to you and I like servants of righteousness, how are we to know the difference between false and true prophets? If we can't rely upon outward appearance, upon what should we rely? Well, the key, of course, is to look carefully, to look beyond the surface, to see past the outward appearance, to unzip, so it, to speak, the sheep's suit. Jesus tells us we will know the true prophet from the false prophet, not by a look, by a look at outward appearances, but by their fruit, you will recognize them by their fruits, he says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So the true test of a, the genuine test of a true or false prophet has to do with the class or type and character of their fruit. Because appearances can be deceiving. But taking the time to inspect the fruit gives us a more certain indication of the nature of the tree. When I was a young boy in Chilton County, Alabama, there were a great many orchards, all kinds of orchards, peach and apple and pear and plum, plum trees. And, and when I was at that age, I, I couldn't tell what kind of orchard I was in until the fruit began to, to appear. And, and likewise, if you're not an, uh, an expert, if you're, not a, if you're not skilled at picking out fruit trees by the appearance of their foliage, if you come upon an orchard of trees that have yet to bear fruit, it's going to be very difficult for you to say and to be able to determine what kind of tree there are in that orchard. And you simply have to wait until the fruit began to appear, which is what I had to do at, at that age. And, and as it did, all the doubt would be removed as to the kind of tree it was saw apples you would conclude it was an apple tree and peaches you'd say it was a peach tree and so on that's precisely the point that jesus is making here he says that a good tree bears good fruit conversely a bad tree or diseased tree bears bad fruit and the distinction jesus makes is even really more clear than similar looking trees impossible for instance he says it is for a thorn bush to produce grapes they got to be produced from a grapevine or for Thistles to produce fig trees. They come from fig trees. Inspecting the fruit is the, is the key, he's saying then, to discerning the true prophet from the false prophet. Now, we might ask ourselves then, because we're going to go this route, understand what you're saying, preacher, what kind of fruit reveals the nature of a prophet? What are the marks of a... What are the, what are the characteristics of the fruit of a true prophet? And what are the characteristics of the fruit of a false prophet? I'm going to equip you today with seven characteristics of the fruit of a false prophet. And the first one is this. False prophets are people pleasers. What they teach is meant to tickle the ear more than it is to profit the heart. They tickle the ears of their followers with flattery, and they, they, often, they often treat what's sacred and holy with, with humor and a startling lack of theological precision. There's a lack of reverence for the Word and awe of the Word. And this contrast, I suggest to you, sharply with a true teacher of the Word who knows that he is answerable to God. And he's therefore more eager to please God than he is to please men or people. Paul would say, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. False prophets are people pleasers. And secondly, false prophets often focus their severest critiques for God's genuine and faithful servants. And we see this in, in, in the Bible, when, like when Korah and his friends rose up against Moses and Aaron in number 16. When Paul's ministry was, was threatened and undermined by those critics who said that, yeah, sure, Paul, Paul's words are strong, but he's so unimpressive in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Of course, we most significantly see it in the vicious attacks of the religious authorities upon our Savior Jesus. 
In our day, false teachers continue to denounce and demean God's faithful servants and the church as we know it. And yet, as Augustine declared, echoing Jesus' words from earlier in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, he that willingly takes from my good name unwillingly adds to my reward. And then third, false teachers teach their own brand of wisdom and vision. This was true in the days of Jeremiah when God said of such men, These prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And today as well, false teachers teach the foolishness of men instead of the the deeper, richer wisdom of God. Paul knew that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Victoria Osteen once told that massive congregation there at Lakewood to realize something, to realize that their devotion to God is not really about God, but about themselves. She said, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way we could look at it, but we're doing it for ourselves. But God, because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's what gives God His greatest joy. And she continues, so I want you to know this morning, just, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? But you can imagine the thunderous amen that got from that congregation. Al Mohler writes, America deserves the Osteen's. The consumer culture, the cult of the therapeutic, the marketing impulse, and the sheer superficiality of American cultural Christianity probably made the Osteens inevitable. The Osteens are phenomenally successful because they are an exaggerated fulfillment of the self-help movement and the cult of celebrity rolled into one massive megachurch media empire. And to cap it all off, they give Americans what Americans crave reassurance delivered with a smile. Beloved, false teachers teach their own personal brand of wisdom and vision. And then fourth, false teachers miss the important stuff and focus their attention instead on the trivial details. Jesus diagnosed this very tendency in the teachers of His day, warning them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. False teachers tend to place great emphasis on the smaller commands, even as they ignore the greater overarching commands. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, we have somehow gotten a hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. Listen carefully to this. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person is the one who does not emphasize the right things. 
Paul warned Timothy of the one who is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers miss the important stuff and focus their attention instead on trivial details. And then fifth, false teachers cloud and clutter their false teaching with polished language and what appears to be, at least on the surface, some common sense logic. The false teacher hides his, his heresy and his dangerous doctrine behind powerfully and passionately delivered arguments and, and eloquent language. He, he, offers, he offers his listeners a toxic pill disguised with candy coating. On the surface, it's, it's so appealing, and it seems, well, it seems like there's something here. I ought to consider this. But in reality, it is lethal. We talked last Sunday about the narrow gate and the wide gate, about the broad, easy road that, road that many find, and about the hard, narrow road that only a few find. And Jesus follows that teaching up with teaching here about false prophets who almost never speak of a narrow gate and certainly not of a hard way. Even if their message has a tinge of, of toughness or it sounds a little bit demanding, at the core, at the core, what it's always about, if you'll listen carefully, not that I want you to listen, it's about the works of man. And that's, that means it's something that man can accomplish by his own efforts. False prophets never speak to the depth and the danger and the depravity of sin. The need for repentance, forgiveness, and submission to the Lord or the, or the destiny of judgment, condemnation, and eternal destruction for those apart from God. There's no brokenness over sin, no longing after righteousness. They often provide simplistic answers for small problems. Jeremiah says, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Jesus saying, excuse me, Jeremiah says, they're saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. There's no humility. There's no warning of judgment. There's no call for repentance. There's no call for a contrite heart that's concerned with obedience. And I've got a ready hearing among a great many people because they say what people really want to hear, just like ancient Israel did in Jeremiah's time. A lot of folks today like it that way. So many people want to hear illusions, not truth. And, and with eloquent deception, the false prophet will cater to those desires. He will speak watered-down doctrine and powerless platitudes to those who are enamored with, with pleasure and fantasy and who strongly resist and resent being confronted with anything unsettling, anything condemnatory, opting instead for this constant reinforcement so they can go away feeling good about themselves. They celebrate the false prophet who, who, who never offers correction that challenges them to obey and therefore find true joy. He'll give them the positive words they desire but not the truth they so desperately need. 
Because that's just being negative, you see. They want great grace, but not at great cost. So the false prophet speaks of a grace that is cheap, doesn't reflect their sinfulness and inadequacies and lostness, and he plays masterfully upon those shortcomings. The creed of a false prophet, if he has a creed at all, will be vague and unspecific and have just a sprinkle of the supernatural. No demanding truth will be put forth that is absolute and clear-cut. Every principle proclaimed will be easy and attractive. False teachers cloud and clutter their false teaching with polished language that appears to be truthful. And on the surface, at least, have some common sense logic. And six, false teachers are more concerned with winning opinions, winning others to their opinions, than in helping and bettering them. This is another one of uh, Jesus' diagnoses as he considered the religious rulers of the day. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Beloved, false teachers are ultimately not in the business of bettering lives and saving souls, but convincing minds and winning followers. And seventh, false teachers exploit their followers. Peter would have warned of this danger, saying, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. False teachers. The false teachers exploit those who follow them because they themselves are greedy and desirous of the riches of this world. Very interesting. that The word translated ravenous, or you may have it translated uh, ferocious, in your translation, it is a Greek word that means robber or extortioner, which is an apt description, right, for what false prophets are all about. False prophets, false teachers, are concerned with your goods, not your good. They want to serve themselves more than they want to save the lost, and they're content to, for Satan to have your soul as long as they can have your money. False prophets can be identified by their converts and their followers. They'll attract people to themselves, themselves to people who have the same superficial, self-centered, and unscriptural orientation as they do. Peter says many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Beloved, they have many followers because, again, they teach and promote what the majority of the people want to hear, what they want to believe. And their followers will be like them, all about themselves, self-centered, prideful, self-indulgent, self-willed, self-satisfied, while having just an air of religion about them. They'll be both self-oriented and group-oriented, but never gospel-oriented, and certainly not scripture-oriented. Listen, we need to understand that while God has not ordained false prophets, He has ordained that they exist in His sovereignty. 
Paul explains to the Corinthian church and to us, for there, were, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. False factions will act as magnets that attract others who are false. And in that indirect way, they'll help protect true believers by partly separating the chaff from the wheat before Jesus comes to do that finally and ultimately. When you're trying to, to, trying to evaluate one who purports to speak the truth in the name of the Lord, first try to look at the inner character of the individual. Try to get a look inside. Try to look at the heart. Take the time to get to know the person well enough to know what's on the inside. And incidentally, this is one of the great arguments for being connected to a local church. You can't simply watch someone on the Internet or on television or, and evaluate what's on the inside of that individual. You, ne you never really get a chance to see them long enough to get any idea of that. And it's only when you live with people week to week and month to month and year to year and get to know them that you see what they're really made of, see what's on the inside. A true prophet will be involved in doing the work of the Lord in a selfless way. He will not be doing it for his own glory. He will not be motivated by personal financial gain. He will be a servant of God seeking to serve others. We're exhorted, beloved, in the Scriptures to give attention to sound doctrine, to proper scriptural teaching. A false prophet will always subtly pervert the teaching of Scripture. He will give it a slightly twisted way. He'll give it in a slightly twisted way in order to serve his own ends. And that's why it's so important for, for you and I to get into the Bible ourselves, to know what God's Word says in order not to be deceived by those who would twist Scripture. Too many people... Let me back up. Let me say this. When you, when you hear these many voices claiming to speak for God, I encourage you to be careful. And notice I didn't say skeptical. Too many people have, have, have kind of clothed themselves off from God and, and the people of God to the point of being cynical. They're so afraid of being deceived. They've been deceived before, you see. And the fact that there are false prophets means that there are true prophets. So don't be skeptical. Be careful. Evaluate what you hear. Evaluate what you hear by the Word of God. Look at the character of the person's life. Look at the, at the goal of the person's ministry. And if what you see lines up with the Word of God, then rejoice. If there's something that's not right, then beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So let's wrap this up. No one enriches hell more than false teachers. No one finds greater joy in drawing people away from truth and leading them in error. And listen, they've been... False teachers have been present in every era of human history. They have always been a plague and have always been in the business of counterfeiting the truth. 
As early as the first century A.D., false doctrine was already infiltrating the church. And many of the letters, as you know, many of the letters of the, of the New Testament that we have today were written to address those errors, as Paul did in Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Also in Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul exhorted us in his protege Timothy to guard against those who were peddling heresies and confusing the flock. He says in 1 Timothy 6, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Beloved, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have no excuse for remaining ignorant of theology because we have the whole counsel of the Word of God available to us. God's Word is complete. And we study to show ourselves approved unto God. And as we do that, we're less likely to be taken in by smooth talkers and false prophets. When we know God's Word, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Sadly, in our day, it is not a question of if you will ever hear false prophets teaching. It is simply a matter of when. And sadly, that's probably just about every day. The real question then is, can you determine, can you determine truth from falsehood? If you watch television and you keep... You keep up with what's going on in the world. You spend any time on the Internet. You interact with folks in social media. You will be exposed to some level of false teaching. And if you can't determine whether or not what you're hearing is true, it's not going to be because you're not being exposed to it. Don't think that for a minute. It might be. It might be because, because you're falling for it to a certain degree. The greatest defense against false teaching is a church that knows, is saturated in, takes great joy in, and strives to be obedient to the Word of God, and holds its teachers accountable. John Piper writes, We need shepherds who know themselves first and foremost as sheep, and only secondarily as leaders and teachers. Beloved, leadership needs to be held accountable for their teaching and for their personal walk with Christ. Pastors are just people, and we should be with the people. Please excuse the metaphor here, but shepherds should smell like the sheep because they live with and they walk with and they talk with and among the sheep, and they're not separate from the flock. 
We need pastors who are more thrilled about seeing the names of folks written in the Lamb's Book of Life than they are about being put up on a pedestal and personally profiting from their ministry. But you know what? We can do our best. We can do our best with accountability, and we should. And we can do our best to hold our leaders from the local church to those who are on television and the Internet to a high biblical standard of personal conduct and theological integrity. But when it comes right down to it, there is no infallible system or effort we can undertake. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the, the heart of a very strong chapter on false teaching, Paul gives us great confidence there. The Lord knows how to secure, how to rescue the godly from trials. And in speaking of false prophets, he says they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Loving Christ will protect His bride from false prophets in the end. And false prophets will get what they deserve in the end. So let's arm ourselves from false teaching and the men who would deceive us for personal gain by immersing ourselves in God's Word, by carefully listening to the messages we hear, measuring them, testing them against the Word of God, and by examining the fruit of those who lead us. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for uh, your holy word that never fails to teach us exactly what is true and protects us against that which is false. We're thankful for a church tradition, Father, like Richland Baptist Church, that is rich in theological integrity and doctrinal purity. Father, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit that will give us the discernment we need to recognize those who are false from those who are true. Father, as we conclude our time together with you today and with one another, we pray for your Spirit to move. We have a time of response and a time where we Remember the sacrifice of your son through the Lord's Supper. Father, we pray that you would finish the work, Father, that you started in our hearts when we came into this place today. We came into this place today wherever we were at on whatever scale you want to measure us by, Father, and you desired for us to be edified while we were in this place. Lift it up to leave this place more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, than, we, than when we came. And that is our earnest prayer as we conclude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.